Welcome to the Life Purpose Podcast, the podcast that supports you in finding and embodying your purpose. My name is Paulisari, and I am your host. In this episode, I talk to Stuart Davis. Stuart is a writer, director, actor, comedian, podcaster, and songwriter. He has recorded more than 15 albums and made TV shows like Sex, God and Rock and Roll and The Stuart Davis Show. In our conversation, we talk about purpose in the context of being a creative artist. Among other things, we talk about the fundamental creativity of the universe, about how our calling usually tends to lead us outside of our comfort zone, and about the somewhat surprising direction where his purpose has taken him recently. Before we dive into the episode, I'd like to take a brief moment to say a few words about an online workshop that I will be offering soon. This workshop is for you if you have devoted a significant part of your life to deep spiritual practice, and if you're now in a place where you want to make a difference in the world, but you do not know where to start. It is for you if you have a sense that something is calling to you, but you can't grasp exactly what it is. It seems like it could be several different things, and it's difficult to choose. The aim of this workshop is to give you a better chance of getting to a place where you feel fully aligned with your calling, a place where you are 100% engaged in contributing towards a better world in a way that feels deeply meaningful to you. It's a 90-minute workshop in the Foundations of Purpose Discovery, and it's completely free. Some of the topics that we will cover in the workshop are the relationship between soul and purpose, soul encounter techniques, the three worlds of purpose to wake up, grow up, and show up, eight facets of purpose, the purpose octagon, and obstacles to purpose discovery and how to overcome them. If this sounds interesting, I encourage you to go to paulisari.com and sign up for the workshop. There are only a limited amount of spots available, so if you want to make sure to get a spot, it may be a good idea to sign up as soon as possible. The workshop is 90 minutes, it takes place on Zoom, and it's completely free. You can find more information and sign up at paulisari.com webinar or simply go to paulisari.com and find the webinar page in the menu. Okay, that's all I wanted to share about the workshop, so let's dive into my conversation with Stuart Davis. I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, so welcome to the Life Purpose Podcast, Stuart. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be joining you today. Yeah, so... um, we're going to talk about purpose as always on this podcast and I have a couple of directions where I imagine we may be going but I would like to start with a very open question first and that is what comes to your mind and heart when you connect to the topic of purpose right now in this moment? Yeah, I would say that question has evolved for me over time. And one of the ways that I have (laughs) become more acquainted with the enigmatic 
registers of that question is whether purpose is something that is contained and oriented by, say, God or spirit. Um, A question that I've ruminated a lot on my life is whether God has intention. And Mm. if that intention is something that can be known or apprehended anthropomorphically. So I certainly feel a lot of purpose in my life. I can touch on a menu of the big ones, of course, my daughters and my wife and my family and my birth family, the purpose there just being presence and connectedness, you know, the simple purpose of being in mutuality with these people that I love, uh, including my dog and my other pets, very much so. And then there are much more mysterious varieties of purpose in my life, which is this long-term ongoing feeling that there's a mystery afoot in existence and that as a seeker, a lot of my time and attention and purpose has been around not trying to solve that puzzle or imagining that I can, but engaging with the mystery to have a relationship with it in a way that is constantly changing me. And that purpose is much more amorphous and dynamic. That form of purpose has remained in flux through much of my life. And then as an artist, there's also an adjacent purpose there, which is to become and remain a participant, an embodiment of the fundamental creativity of the cosmos and the manner in which this ceaseless, unending, limitless surprise and novelty is emerging moment to moment and always has been. And that's really perhaps the most fundamental thing that can be known about the cosmos is its creativity. So as an artist, a big part of my purpose is always thinking and feeling my place in that lineage and trying to be, uh, there's this sentiment around this, which is a thing should be what it is. And I think fundamentally we are creative and we were created by a creator that's so creative, it creates other creators. And mm. that's a big part of my purpose and fascination. So yeah, that's that's the beginning of it in a nutshell, I would say. It's interesting because you kind of described, you know, in the um the model of purpose that I use as kind of a foundation for for my work is a, a f- three worlds of purpose model. There's the upper world and the lower world and the middle world. And you kind of described um, these three kinds of purposes in in your, in there. Um, so the upper world would be more the spiritual awakening part and the middle world, more the world of mutuality and relations and um, yeah, becoming a, grown up <laughs> a truly mature person yeah. and and then the lower world would be more hmm, the world of soul purpose and that's when you speak about creativity and um that that part has more to do with with soul purpose i think yeah well we're simpatico <laughs> we have a congruency among our uh 
purposes here. Yeah. Hmm. Let's see. Yeah, well, maybe let's pick up the creativity thread here. Um, one thing that you sometimes talk about is this notion of something from nothing. Mm. Um, and the ancient artistic lineage of something from nothing. And I feel that that's really um, very closely connected to purpose. And mm. um, just this, because purpose is always somehow something mysteriously emerging into this world yeah. uh, through us. And it's kind of making ourselves um, a channel of sorts for, for that thing to, to, to arise. And um, yeah, so maybe you could speak a little bit more about that. Certainly. It's one of my favorite things to ruminate on, to experience, to consider is this, <clears throat> as you noted, a lineage that for sake of convenience, I've come to call something from nothing. And that something from nothing lineage is the symbol fundamental operating principle of the cosmos, which is moment to moment, the sum total of reality is arising and continually shifting, evolving, changing in its dynamism. And yet no one really knows how something arrives from nothing, how something emerges from nothing. And I took a quite circuitous route as a spiritual seeker and practitioner, I like to say that I'm spiritually promiscuous and have pretty much involved myself with most mystical or esoteric lineages that are out there. And primarily Zen, the most deep, sustained, long-term relationship I had with the lineage was with Zen. But uh, in the course of that, I also just, as an integralist and a curious person, everything from Sufism to Kashmir Shaivism to contemplative Christianity, whatever it was that floated in front of me in the stream, I was always willing to try to explore a bit. So the irony around that is that <clears throat> I spent a lot of time, years, decades, delving these esoteric and contemplative practices and lineages. And it was only later in life in my 40s that I had this quasi-eureka moment where I realized, oh, the, the universe is actually fundamentally creative. Like one of the few things we can say with great certainty among the host of mysteries which are present in our cosmos is that creativity has always been an underpinning. It's always been central to the heart of what the cosmos is and does. And... I realized slowly <clears throat> in a funny way where <laughs> sometimes things are so close to our face, we don't see them. It's like trying to look into your own eyeball. And the realization came to me that the artistic lineage is the most intimately concordant and expressive of this fundamental characteristic of the cosmos, which is creativity. And the more that I thought about this, it really began to seize me and take hold of a new understanding and a new way of participating in my 
primary lineage as an artist. So there's really only two ways that we can go about existing in this reality, in this cosmos. One is passively participating in creativity moment to moment, which every person is doing, every cell of our body, every facet of humanity, and for that matter, all that can be observed in the cosmos is creative. It's it's creating and constantly participating in that. So you can either participate passively or participate with agency. And that little inflection point took hold of me. And then I began to do a review, just a consideration of the human history and path of unfolding on earth and things I had never sincerely, deeply considered before became absolute obsessions for me. So for instance, I came to realize and recognize that at some point in human history, there had never been a phoneme. There had never been a signifier. There had never been a referent. And a human being genuinely gave rise to the first phoneme, the first signifier. Some human being at some point gave birth to a referent. And simply, truly understanding the profundity of that implication, the creative genius, which is almost incomprehensible, what an act of genius that was. And as soon as I had that feeling of, oh my God, that really, you know, all we take for granted and which goes largely unseen because we're the benefactors and inheritors of seven or 8,000 languages extent at this time and through history, who knows how many. And we swim in language all the time. And so to have lost this grandeur and an intimate sense of how astonishing that human offering was for someone to bring forth the first referent, the first signifier. Uh, As soon as I thought of that, then a domino effect began to happen. And I thought of the first melody that a human being ever sung and the first time instruments and rhythm and the partition of time into tempos and musical structures, cave paintings, just anything you can think of. I realized that creativity is really the primordial lineage. Creativity is the lineage that gave rise to every other lineage, including Zen or whatever we want to think of. They were all issued and brought forth from the primordial lineage, which is creativity itself. And the longer that I remained in the consideration of these fantastic miracles, then the more I came to admit that I had been misunderstanding my own lineage, that I had been blind and unobservant of this primordial lineage. And then I became very passionate and interested in trying to correct that, formulate a day-to-day practice and sacred participation in being a human being that placed that back in the center of things and the heart of things. And it's certainly, I mean, obviously it's not in conflict with anything. The primordial lineage is perfectly compatible with every other lineage that exists or we could imagine existing. And so it's great versatility and immediate felt 
offering to any human being, because really this is the native endowment of every single human being that's ever been born or would be born. And it's just a question of to what degree and depth we choose to take up that participation and that offering. And when I say that, I don't mean to pathologize or disparage everyone's unique individuated expression and exploration of that. There's a million right ways that it can look. And for me, it has just looked particularly artistic and multimedia. And then that braiding and roping in with my meditation practice, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So there is this this impulse of creativity. We could call it the evolutionary impulse. We could call it our calling. But there's this something that grabs us and wants to move us in a certain direction or make us <laughs> do something specific in this life. And um, often when people... When people feel the call, it can sometimes be scary because it can, we may be called to things that somehow are kind of outside of our comfort zone. And most, I would say, in fact, that um, it's almost always, we're almost always called a little bit outside of our comfort zone. Otherwise, it's not really our true calling, most likely. Mm. And um, my, my impression is that you have, because many people say no to the call when it comes, or they push it aside for decades until they, it finally it's impossible to to ignore it. But it seems to me like you have you haven't been doing that a lot, like pushing it aside. You've been saying yes, very, you know, mostly. Would you? Is that correct? Yeah, and I guess. I would also recognize that human beings are brought in with various constitutions and formulations of being, whether that's the personality or the soul. And so I definitely have always, I guess since about age 12, I've really been a very, very hardcore artist. As soon as I learned to play guitar, I was playing six hours a day. I had You had to pry it out of my hands. I could not be separated from guitar. And I also immediately simultaneous with learning an instrument was writing music. So there's never been a time, whatever aspect of my creative life, painting, writing, writing music, uh, comedy, whatever it is, it's always been creative and a generative fecundity is at the center of it. But what I would qualify as well is that I don't I don't feel that there's necessarily some noble or uh, achievement in my having lived my entire life this way because I think constitutionally I couldn't do something else. It's almost it's just that I'm made this way, and so I don't want to overly contrast my life as a creative artist, which is, it's pretty much eclipsed everything in my life in, the, in a beautiful way. And I understand that people have all kinds of paths. And so 
I'm sure people could look at my life and think like, oh my God, you know, he's done nothing but make art for 30 some years, which is true. But at the same time, I just came into the world that way. And I didn't, I also have to really recognize how fortunate and lucky I've been. I've been incredibly supported and there's particular details about how my artistic career has unfolded that are not mine to take credit for. Um, they have a lot to do with community and tribe and uh, they have to do also with the cultural moments that I was brought into. I mean, for to be precise, more specific, my music career could not happen now. If I had been born, if I was a child now, my music career would not happen. And the simple truth is the cultural moment when it was possible for me to thrive is gone. And I'm acutely aware of that. And it's also one of the reasons I'm so ferociously passionate about working to cultivate a deeper culture, to cultivate depth and to intentionally place an emphasis on art and creativity as not an indulgence and not an ornamental navel-gazing enterprise. It's actually fundamentally critical for our survival as a species. It's the only thing that has ever rescued us. Every iteration that we can think of humanity plummeted into these crater moments where we truly were in peril of not existing anymore. And I think there's arguments to be made that there are features of that occurring right now on the planet. And it can be, it can be confusing and misleading to think there's seven or 8 billion people and that that somehow secures our future. I think that going back to this artistic principle, the something from nothing lineage, that is the lineage that rescued us every time we were in peril. And that's the lineage that will carry us forward if we succeed in the coming tens of thousands of years, which again, geologically is nothing. Uh, we can look back to a period 70 to 72,000 years ago when we really very nearly vanished off the planet. So those two themes that I just wanted to highlight there were I credit and feel so grateful with all the support that I got from other human beings. I recognized I got lucky when I was born, where I was born, the family I was born into. So many things had to fall in place for me to be able to just say, oh, I'm going to be an artist and nothing else. I, I would not be able to do that now. And then the, the second one being that we, I really feel passionate about us reframing and obtaining an understanding of art, which does not see it as a commodity or an indulgence, does not see it as ornamentation or artifice. There's a great book that I always recommend to everybody called Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, which is written by J.F. Martel. And it's all about this theme. And I've, I feel like it's a, a sacred text at this time in our collective unfolding. So yeah, let me just pause there because those are the two things that percolated up for me um, on those thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, certainly you're making an important point here that it's it's very um, different between different individuals how difficult it is to to follow 
what we are called to do depending on how traumatized we are and how much support we have and and many other factors yes that's certainly true um yeah i still i still get a little bit curious because have there been moments when you were like oh jesus can i really do this um like where you were felt like really called to do something and then there was like a great degree of hesitation and you still went ahead and did it but like um yeah i'm just curious if there have been moments <laughs> like that and like what helped you then to kind of do it anyway jump it's a great it. question it's a great question and i want to use comedy as a way to talk about this question as a way to walk around this consideration Let's just, in a simple sense, for sake of convenience, identify on one end of the spectrum fear, hesitation, trepidation, and on the other end of the spectrum, on a ban- uh, total freedom, limitless abandonment, and confidence. So the phenomenon that you're describing, the first thing that comes to mind for me is live performance and perhaps particularly the live performance of comedy. So I had a, I had a TV show for a few years called sex, God, rock and roll. And we taped it live in front of a live audience. Although the show, it's funny. I look back on this and think we didn't have to do that actually. Like (laughs) the show went to broadcast taped, but we taped it live. And the reason I think that I, felt so determined to have the show be recorded live is because there's a trust fall that's like being tipped over backwards into a chasm. When you walk out on stage in front of a live audience and do comedy, I mean, it's the single most terrifying thing that I've done. And I've just done every kind of performance almost that you can think of. I'm not dancing, but pretty much everything else. Songwriting, concerts, um, acting, um, whether it be on screen or theater, but doing comedy in front of a live audience. And it wasn't even so much about the cameras that was part of it, but mostly it's about this utterly unpredictable, completely unknowable equation that you're entering into. And that equation includes the complete unpredictability of the audience that's going to arrive each time you do one of these performances. You don't know who's coming. You don't know what their day was like. You don't know what's happening in their life. You can't know. And I would say you don't need to, you shouldn't know. But what you do know is that you're about to completely expose your soul in the most vulnerable, delicate, and explosively charged way imaginable, at least in my life and experience. And so you go out in in, uh, this series, I would go out and do a five minute monologue, a live comedy monologue before each episode started. And those were always the most incredible. I mean, it was like being hit by lightning. The charge was so strong and many, many performers speak of and have related this in great detail and depth, which is the high is so powerful that you actually need a day to come down after the performances. It's just 
reverberates through your body in this electric way. And, you know, the beautiful thing that I'll say about live audiences as well is that in general, not every time, there's certainly bad audiences, sometimes audiences, in my opinion, get it wrong and just can't be worked with. But generally, 95% of the time, an audience wants to see you succeed. They want to love you. They they have an appreciation for the tightrope walk that you're doing and they're rooting for you. So most of the time they're rooting for you. Although that doesn't diminish necessarily the incredible, seemingly insurmountable undertaking that you're feeling like 60 seconds before you go on stage mm. and you're looking at that audience. It always... I just have never felt anything so electric. And there was one particular performance that I think is just a hilarious tale that I want to <laughs> share in this regard. is like one of the funniest things that ever happened to me as a performer, which was I was doing a benefit concert and <clears throat> it was one of these, it was in LA at the, I can't remember the name of the theater. It was like a 3000 seat theater sold out and it's all these stars, you know, Louis Anderson and I'm going to forget some of the others, but I was supposed to go on right before Jim Carrey. (laughs) And so I'm standing backstage, no side of the stage. I'm literally at the curtain waiting to go on. And Jim Carrey (laughs) just walks right by me and walks out on stage and takes the microphone and just decides, I think he just literally did this of his own accord. He just decided he was going to go on first. I think he might've been in a hurry or something. He had to get somewhere later that night, maybe. So he goes out on stage and he grabs the microphone (laughs) and he just starts extemporaneously speaking about the struggles he's been having in life. And it's, it's really tender. It's like a vulnerable, sincere moment. And he's speaking to this theater of 3,000 people in this really heartbreaking way. I think he just been through some really difficult stuff. And people can investigate on their own. That's not necessary for us to get into. But I, I would say, suffice to say, he was having a, a low moment and he spoke sincerely about that. People were moved, etc. But when he got off the stage, I mean, the theater was in a nadir. It was in the bottom of the Grand Canyon level energy, just like depression had seeped through the seats. And so I step out on the stage to this 3,000 saddened people, and I'm following Jim Carrey. No one knows who the hell I am or could care less. And I step up to the microphone, plug my guitar in, and there's no sound. There's no no microphone. The microphone is not working and the guitar is not working. I am literally standing by myself on stage in front of 3,000 people with no sound at all. It's the quintessence of the nightmare every performer has it's like the only way it could have gotten worse is if I was naked and I'm standing on stage for like 30 seconds 60 seconds I'm trying to you know the sound people are going crazy no one can figure out why the sound is not working 
And the whole room is just like, what the fuck is happening right now? So I just walked to the edge of the stage and I just shouted at the top of my lungs that I want to thank Jim. I want to thank Jim Carrey for opening for me. (laughs) (laughs) And the room just like erupted in laughter. Mm. And that let all of the tension out of the room. And like that just completely... Not that that's any kind of brilliant joke or anything. It was just like this valve that opened up and everyone relaxed. And then they did end up fixing the sound a few minutes later and it all went on. But the reason that I'm bringing that story up now is that as a performer, that's, you know, if you're sitting around in your bed at night, uh, imagining anxiety and provoking scenarios, that's about as bad of a scenario I could have thought of. Mm. And But in the moment, in the moment as it was happening, my feeling was like, this is so hilarious. This is really like the worst thing ever. And it's just fine. I'm like, I'm just, I'm still like, I got all my fingers and toes. I'm still here. I'm still okay. Like, this is going to be whatever it is. And so when when you're outside of a moment and you're in your head and you're trying to think of like all the things that you would want to do to try to rescue that moment that's not actually what that moment feels like and a big part of why that moment didn't feel that way is because human beings again generally 95 percent of the time an audience doesn't want you to fail they don't want you to be miserable or embarrassed and they're already looking at you on stage like having this this hilarious catastrophe they're gonna they want to find a way for it to work for you. So to to your question about have there been times where I looked at the thought of doing something and the proposition of it just seemed too much. Mm. No, not really, but not, that's also not to say that I didn't feel stage fright every time I got on a stage, every time. I mean, I thought about this a lot on the last tour I did because I toured, I mean, really, I started doing shows at the age of 15 or 16. And my last tour was in 2012. And I did 136 cities. And at that point, I'd been on tour for 25 years, I'd done over a 1000 shows in the US and Europe. And I can tell you in all sincerity, the stage fright never went away. I found myself astonished on that last tour where I just thought, what is wrong with me? Why am I still (laughs) feeling anxiety after I've done a thousand shows? And I think that the answer to it is honestly really simple. It's like there's a sophistication to some kinds of stage fright and anxiety, which could also be called expectancy or care. I just really always cared a lot. I really always wanted the audience to get something meaningful and for us to connect. And so I felt responsible or at least that my presence was going to be an important factor in whether or not that happened or not. And so the anxiety was roped into this feeling of like, I really hope something good can come of this and that I can get out of the way. Cause that's the other <clears throat> counterintuitive aspect of it is that as a performer, you you want to think, or you could be tempted to think 
that your control or personality is somehow the critical factor to whether or not a good show happens. But actually, it's strangely the other way around, which is it's important that you have a strong personality. I always thought of it as the opening act. It says hello, but then it needs to get out of the way. And if it doesn't get out of the way, then the soul can't come forward. The soul has to wait in the wings until the personality can step out of the way. So the fear, yeah, always. There was never, basically never not a time when I didn't get stage fright or anxiety before going on stage. But then usually after five or 10 minutes, that softens and the personality steps aside and then something much more beautiful on a good night, something much more beautiful and deep can unfold. And that's always a surprise. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, that's really an example of how how if we are truly on purpose, if we're truly following our calling, we will all the time be called into outside of our comfort zone and for you that happened at every gig basically and that's kind of a sign that you're still on track (laughs) (laughs) if if it would have like become very comfortable to to have your concerts then i'm guessing that you would have become bored with it and like felt that i need to find something else (laughs) precisely yeah precisely and i think that that is also a feature of integral curiosity and one of the benefits or gifts that is often a result of an integral practice or a more integral, integrally informed approach to whatever we're doing is that a bunch of possibilities open up. There's really this flowering of understanding, wow, we really do have access to all these perspectives, all of these frames of reference, be they states or stations or stages, and the infinite ingenuity of our environment to participate with us in that sense. So you get this integral curiosity that opens up and you realize, yeah, not just performing music, like let's try comedy or let's try screenwriting. Let's, you know, let's, for me, I got really interested in making a language and I I just found that Every creative artistic medium, pretty much, like, again, I'm not a dancer, but I've maybe had five or six different careers from music to TV to film to books to painting has been a big presence in my life. And we just inherit this strange set of filters and assumptions, which typically include messages and implications that we're supposed to pick a lane and stick with it when really there's no rules here. You can do whatever you want. You can, I'm not going to say there's no parameters. There are parameters. It's true that if you want to make a living as an author, that's going to involve certain parameters, but in terms of creativity and the practices we can explore, there's nothing, pretty much nothing is off limits to us. And so I see this a lot with, the integral uh, advent in people's lives where all of these beautiful big possibilities open up for them and that's just being more alive and it's a really beautiful thing 
Hi, sorry for interrupting. I would just like to take a brief moment to share a bit about what I do as a purpose guide. So are you a person who has devoted a significant part of your life to deep spiritual practice and who now wants to make a difference in the world but who doesn't really know where to start? Do you have a sense that something is calling to you, but you can't grasp exactly what it is? It seems like it could be several different things, and it's difficult to choose. What you would like is to get to a place where you feel fully aligned with your calling. A place where you are 100% engaged in contributing towards a better world, in a way that feels deeply meaningful to you. So my solution to this dilemma would be to help you find your purpose. Because when you have that clarity about why you're here, why you're alive in this time and place, it's so much easier to choose. And when it's easier to choose, it's easier to get engaged in what you're doing without constant doubts about whether what you're doing is the right thing. So how do we do that? How do I help you get clear about your purpose? It's a process that is very much about connecting you to your soul, because your soul, the deepest part of yourself, is the part that knows your purpose. So the whole program, the Purpose Discovery Program, is very much centered around helping you get closer to your soul, and to get information from your soul about your purpose and the different aspects of your purpose. We divide purpose into eight different facets, vision, powers, values, essence, giveaway, task, message, and delivery system. And through different kinds of practices, you will gradually more and more clarify each of these throughout the process. Towards the end of the process, you're likely to have a very good soul-level understanding about why you're here. If this sounds interesting for you, you can book a free introductory session it doesn't cost you anything, just a little bit of your time. We'll have a chat and we'll see if the program is the right fit for you and if you and I are a good fit to work on this together. So if you feel called, I really want to encourage you to go to my website and find the contact page and book a free session. Okay, let's get back to the interview. Thanks for listening. I get curious about how your experience of something new being born through you, like when a new idea, like say that you've been mostly focusing on music for a long time and then suddenly something that's outside of that, like in another another artistic domain arises in you, like an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how does that happen? What does that feel like? Can you share a little bit about that process? Yeah, well, it's it typically includes this fascination around not knowing how to do something. There's mm. something really beguiling and attractive, magnetic about not knowing how to do something. So, for instance, painting uh, has definitely been that type of relationship for me where when I initially began to get into that, I knew that I wanted something particular to emerge, although I couldn't have told you what it was, I couldn't articulate it, but it just orbited 
in my presence. There was an orbiting impulse that something wanted to be brought forth and I didn't know how to bring it forth. And so I began to get into, I mean, this took years, really. I I would say that recently I've come to an understanding and that understanding has finally been matched with a skill set that allows me to bring these paintings forward in the way that I've wanted to for years. But it really did take years. I had to Mm. paint many, many paintings that (laughs) were not what I was looking for. And it was even worse with songs. I mean, the the beauty and brilliance of human creativity is that when you're writing, or I'll just keep it personal for me, when I was writing my first 100 songs and they all sucked, I literally thought every time that I was writing <laughs> the greatest song ever, I really believed that. I It was not merely a rationalization or a justification, I was under the swoon of whatever I was working on. And that is this amazing maneuver that our creativity has the ability to do, which is if if we didn't, or again, just to speak for myself, if I didn't have that feeling, I wouldn't have finished those songs. And I wouldn't have gotten to songs later on that turned out to be good songs. But you know what? They felt the same. The weird thing about creativity in songwriting for me is that when I'm writing a terrible song, it feels the same as when I'm writing a good song. And I'll never know when that's happening. All I know is that I'm totally absorbed and intoxicated by the experience of being the only person on earth who's seen this strange little thing emerge from nothing. Again, it's that something from nothing. I think that the beautiful thing for artists and creators and humans in general is that something from nothing is a miracle every time. And that's whether it's a bad painting, a bad song, or whether it's Cashmere from Led Zeppelin, you know, it's just every time something comes from nothing, it's a miracle. And so as artists, if we place our attention and emphasis on the something from nothing and grant that more value and centrality versus the outcome. Like, is it, are the songs turning out the way I want them to, or is the painting turning out or is my, is this script, how many drafts am I going to have to do with this script? Like you can't, I mean, you can, you can do that if you want, but I just don't see the point of it. I, I don't feel that it accords with the mystical practice of what creativity is, which is, bare total presence and absorption in something from nothing and just participating. That's, that's all we really have to do. Um, and so, yeah, to your question, there's been a lot of what I would characterize as, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't characterize it as bad art. It's just that Everything develops. You know, you can't look at a five-year-old and go, it's wrong to be five. It's mm. stupid to be five. Five-year-olds are stupid. Like <laughs> that's how, That sounds so crazy, right? But we do that with art all the time. People have this, oh, that's a stupid painting, or it's not going the way I want. Or what. That makes as much sense as saying like five-year-olds are stupid. They're just perfectly five. They're supposed to be five. That's mm. That option is there for us as well. Yeah. Well, I'd like to... Mm, there was something that you said in a 
podcast that I listened to recently, or maybe it was in the From Something, From Nothing to Something workshop. Um, you said that you have never met a person who didn't have something unique to offer that would change the world. And um, yeah, I'm specifically interested in the second part there that would something to offer that would change the world because it sounds and and I certainly agree if that's what you mean that our purpose always is connected somehow to to more something that's that has to do with more than just ourselves that our purpose is here to create a more beautiful good and true world mm-hmm. so is that what you mean and can you say a little Absolutely. bit more about that yeah right so taken from the wrong frame that could sound grandiose. I'm not saying that every person has a dictator in them or something like that, right? It's like, I'm not talking about, we each have a a latent Stalin that we could bring forward, but what you honed in on there is precisely what I mean. So again, in that spirit of there's really only two ways to inhabit and be inhabited by the mystery we live in, which is either passively or actively, to be a passive creator or to be an active creator. And oftentimes we oscillate between the two. And in this same sense, you know, each person having something unique that can change the world. By that, I really mean that the universe doesn't make mistakes. It has not made wrong kinds of people. And the each individuated uniqueness that also is in constant development, unfoldment, and flux contains a singular type of offering that they've brought into this world with them and change the world in the sense that it's impossible for us not to be enmeshed with all other human beings that are alive and have lived for that matter. You know, we are the sum in some senses, an expression of, a fulfillment of, but also the potential of all of the human beings, and I would argue beings, period, that have come before us and are sharing the planet with us now. And so each person that I've ever met, I've never met a human being that didn't have some unique offering that is truly distinctly theirs. And that's one of the ways that I feel the universe is so infinitely creative, generative, brilliant, surprising, And the work that I love to do in the world is helping people dial that in, find it, unfold it, protect it, become the custodian and the caretaker and the officiant of this particular sacred offering that's theirs to make. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So we have already talked a bit about your, like how purpose has expressed itself in your life through all of your artistic endeavors. But I'm curious, do you have, like, how would you describe your purpose today? Like your soul purpose? Do you have any words for that? Mm. Well, it's an interesting consideration as of today, because actually I'm in the midst of rolling out a new 
project that is a big life project. And it's, it's not just mine. I have a, a, two other founding members doing this with me, but the project is the experiencer group. Mm. And in terms of soul level work, I definitely feel that this has increasingly become the work of my soul over the years since 2010. Mm. I have roots with experiencers going way back 25, 30 years. But Mm. since 2010, when I had this encounter with a eight foot tall praying mantis entity, uh, which people can hear in an audio documentary we can put in the show notes or whatever. I don't necessarily have to recount that whole thing, but increasingly working with other experiencers Uh, I got certified as a transpersonal hypnotherapist Mm. and certified as a death doula. And then that work one-on-one with experiencers of anomalous phenomena led to being involved in organizations and groups. And now ultimately us launching our own organizational groups. So sole purpose in my life has really come to focus. Hey buddy. No, no. Apologies, that's my Dobie. Yeah. Um, has really come to focus on this intersection between humans and non-human intelligences mm. and what that is like for people to live through and what this time in our collective unfolding is like for experiencers. So we're creating this organization. Uh, may I just... Um, yes, please. My... Not all our listeners may be familiar with the term experiencer, so maybe you could just say a few words about what you mean by that. Sure. So typically, the term experiencer is often used to identify either abductees or contactees. So abductees, people taken against their will by non-human entities or sometimes human entities in an anomalous sense. And then contactees being human beings who've had contact with non-human intelligences, but were not taken against their will. So largely in a more broad sense beyond that, in the context of our site, the experiencer group, we're using experiencer in the most general sense possible. It includes lucid dreamers, precognitives, remote Mm. viewers, near-death experiencers, people who have seen ghosts or have mediumship, Psi capacities, very, very broad. And we open the door to experiences of all anomalous variety of phenomena. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean when I say experiencer. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. So this group or this organization, the experiencer group, is a private and secure community in which experiencers from all those varieties of phenomena can find other experiencers. And then they have groups and meetups with them. They can interact with them one-on-one. We bring in experts and professionals uh, on specific subjects. And then they can also, if they like, have closed groups that are focused on their particular kind of experience. So if you come in and you're a near-death experiencer and you only want to have near-death experience meetings, you can do that. Mm. If you come in and you're a near-death experiencer and you want to learn about ghosts or abduction or human hybridization, you can do any of those or all of those. It's really like a, a buffet where you can pick whatever you want, mix and match and It's private, protected, and 
we are just really rolling out this week. We're opening our doors almost as we speak here to a more general public. And all the way back to your originating question, that has become the primary focus of my sole purpose at this point in life and for the foreseeable future, I would say. Yeah. Mm. And uh, Yeah, so how has... And I'm wondering about how your sense of purpose has changed throughout your life. Can you maybe can you give us a little overview? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming that there has been many stages in in some yeah. sense. Oh, it's that a great journey. question. It's a great question, and yeah, I definitely did not have this sole purpose. Well, I guess we could say, to a large degree, it's mysterious knowing or not knowing which parts of us are perhaps nascent, intrinsically present, and yet they could be latent. So I guess what I would qualify with is saying, maybe I did have this sole purpose when I came into this life, but it just took me enough years of living and experiencing things in order to acquire the life saturation that would allow me to do this work now. So I'm not sure which way that actually works. I guess I I could see it being either way. Mm. Maybe I was born with this knowing it would be part of my life path, but also maybe there's some fun surprises. But to your question, when I came into the world, you know, I think our first, my first few years, of course, were just, yeah, I hate to admit this, but it's true. But the first memory that I have is laying in a crib and looking up at the ceiling and feeling like, oh, shit, I'm here. Like, like I had this feeling that, oh, God, I'm in a low realm. And I didn't have words for that, obviously. That was, this was not a thought formed in language in my head. It was just a feeling that mm. I was in a low realm. And that feeling stuck. I have to say yeah. that... I can remember feeling that on numerous occasions through my childhood. And I think my sole purpose through childhood was just survive, like just make it through this low. Now, I don't feel this way now. So when I describe in pejorative terms what I'm relating, I'm just simply recounting what my childhood self felt and thought. Yeah, And my childhood self did not have a very high opinion of human beings and then was saddled with the irony that I was one. And I didn't know of any good ways to get out of what I would now call samsara. And so until my sole purpose didn't change in that regard until I had a really severe depressive bout, I went through a period where I was just completely ostracized and tormented by everyone in my entire school. And that caused me to become suicidal. And I didn't try to commit suicide, but in the, in the bottom of that depression, I had the experience of being in the presence of something. And to this day, I'm not sure if it was my higher self or I don't know, it never identified itself, but what it communicated to me was you're already dead. It's it's redundant for you to want to kill yourself. The part of you that's dead is always already dead. You can't not exist. It's not possible. So you should stop 
with this line of thinking. It's just silly. Now, again, it didn't it didn't convey that using language. It was just a felt telepathy or person to person feeling. Mm. But the transmission was very, very clear and and strangely that communication <laughs> eliminated my depression. Strangely, this this presence and that experience lifted. I was so fascinated by that thought, you're already dead, that I started to think and feel about that. And that is where my soul, I would say, came back online and then found it had a different purpose. It was maybe the first time my soul really got purposeful. And the purpose was, oh my God, I know about this whole other reality. Like there's some kinds of intelligences around us and they can show up and communicate and holy shit, there's this secret realm that humans have access to and nobody knows about it. Nobody's talking about it. And I just felt like I had this incredible secret and it caused my depression to vanish. And then when my depression vanished, the other funny thing was that I no longer cared when other kids were being cruel to me. Mm. I really didn't give a shit. I mean, it just actually vanished. And they then... Uh, strangely, because, you know, humans have this detector, this sensitivity. You really can't fake these kinds of things. And when a, when a kid is cruel to another kid and then the victim genuinely doesn't give a shit about it and it just washes right off their back, and they, I would just look at these kids like, oh, my God, you're robots, you're morons, you're totally lost in this maze, like mm. you're, you're zombies. And my not reacting to them... <laughs> caused them to become super curious about me. Mm. And so then I became like really popular and I was, you know, just weirdly brought back into the fold with this new elevated status among my peers. But I didn't care about that either. I really didn't. I, I didn't care on either end of the spectrum. I was just kind of lost in this reverie around this new secret this new mystery that I had found, which is like, oh my God, there's other realms and what the hell, you know, that carried my soul purpose to a new direction. And I would say that that direction became seeking Mm -hmm. and that seeking, as you know, and I'm sure I've experienced a lot of, can look a million different ways. Some of the seeking manifest in art and creativity. Some of it was in, dreams and meditation. I had fevers all the time when I was a kid and I had a really almost mystical relationship with my fevers where I would go into these altered states. I'm talking to like 104, 105 degree temperatures and I would go into these altered states and experience such weird shit in my fevers. And in the fever, I would tell myself, remember this, remember this, this is really important. Remember this, but I never could. I would come out of the fever and it would just, it would go with the fever. It was like the fever was the place. The fever was, it, it's, as soon as it went, I just couldn't get that anymore. So that's stuff of soul purpose continued to look like that until I got a career, until I began to work full time as an artist. Mm. And then I would say the focus tightened and I was on a mission for a very long time, 10, 15 years probably, where I was doing 150 concerts a year and just living out of a van and hotels and 
then for that period, my soul's mission was just devoutly about music and performing and, mm. and recording. And then when I met my wife, I would say for me, I knew right away that I was just like in love with her the first time that I saw her. But, um, she changed my soul purpose more profoundly than anything. So when she entered my life, then my soul purpose shifted again to be about her and what our life together was going to be like, which would include kids and was a radical 180. Like I just had lived my entire life saying, I'll never have kids. It's non-negotiable. I will not do it. I will not have children in this lifetime. And then she kissed me one time and I was like, I will do whatever this woman wants. I will have kids. I will. <laughs> I was just like <laughs> completely, literally, she kissed me one time and it just, my sole purpose changed again. And it became about our family and me to a degree. I mean, really to a large degree, it became about me making my life about them. And not, not having the emphasis be about like, am I getting what I want? Is it going my way? And, and, and it has. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not painting it as though I've been a martyr or something. It's been wonderful, but it's been difficult. And not so much in the last 10 years, but the first five to eight were tough. And that sole purpose was <clears throat> about being humbled and because you know I wasn't good at it I was not a good husband I was not a good father like I really didn't know how to do that I had to learn everything from my wife and my daughters and I'm I still am but the first five or eight years were excruciating a lot of the time I mean I just felt like I was disintegrating and gradually that transformed into the sole purpose of there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of just hilarious surprise. You know, my wife and kids are, they're my heroes. They're just brilliant, amazing, hilarious. And that, I mean, it's funny that you're bringing these questions up because of what I would say about that phase of soul purpose mm. and being their dad and being their husband and trying to learn how to be in a relationship that I think was really also, I couldn't do the work I'm doing now if that hadn't happened. Mm. Like even working one-on-one -on -one with experiencers, like my kids and my wife really were the ones who taught me how to pay attention to another human being, mm. to attune to them. And that's all really, most of the time you can do is you attune and just be present with someone to try to help them. But that, I learned that from them. And I'm not saying either that that phase of soul purpose with them where I was learning those things that it was merely so that I could get this phase of soul purpose. I don't feel that. I feel like the phase of soul purpose focused with them was unto itself, its own great reward and cause. And yeah. uh, now there's just a morphine and an unfolding that is expressing itself in this version of soul purpose, which is, uh, you know, cause my wife is also, she's a psychotherapist, sees clients all the time. And she's just a genius with, she's an emotional genius and an attunement 
um, miracle. And so the phase now that's looking like this to go all the way back to the preceding question, which is the experiencer group and us as a team really wanting to create a positive anomalous culture, to create a positive stigma-free, fear-free, troll-free place where people can come and just be honest about what they've lived, what they've experienced. Because people just, you know, even, even in this day and age, and ironically, social media has not helped. In fact, it may have made things worse in some respects, which is no one feels they can say out loud the experiences they've had on social media without just a bunch of shit being thrown at them and whether it's trolls or whatever. So we want to be the antidote to that. And that's what my sole purpose is about right now. And that's kind of how the trajectory went to get here from there, so to speak. Yeah. Hmm. And I'm wondering, is there something um something that's kind of underlying all of these things something that's binding them together that could be like yeah an underlying purpose that that's that goes through all of this that's a great question if i had to guess because i suppose it's debatable whether i'm the person with the right station in all of this in order to be able to perceive and describe that. But if I had to guess, I might say depth. So what each of these iterations has in common is a fundamental need, which I think is really just human to have depth. You know, depth is the oxygen for the soul. And when I describe being a kid and having that period of real torment and feeling suicidal, well, I was rescued by depth, right? And mm. the <clears throat> the feeling of being a performer and being with other people and what is beautiful and special about those experiences is depth. Mm. Being in depth with other people is fundamentally healing. It helps and enriches and heals the soul. And same with all the contemplative practices that I've engaged in my life. They feed the depth of the human being. And my family was completely the most profound, deep experience of my life was being in a family with them. And now looking at these, the the experiencer group and the anomalous uh, phenomena, that is also all about depth and mystery. We have a really deep mystery or a deep set of mysteries going on in the middle of our culture. And it's really not being dealt with in a helpful or mature way. So I guess that's my, that's my intuition is that maybe depth is the common thread that runs through those. Thank you for listening to this episode. The second part of the conversation will be available in about two weeks from now. In that part, we talk among other things about mythopoetic identity, how to actively connect to the imaginal realm the genealogy of the strange, and about how to find one's purpose. If you're not already following the show, I recommend doing that if you want to make sure not to miss the second part. 
If you're interested in the free webinar that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you're warmly invited to go to my website and sign up for it. You can find it at paulisari.com webinar, or simply go to paulisari.com and find the webinar page in the menu. I really recommend signing up soon if you want to make sure to get a spot, since there are only a limited amount of spots available. I also want to mention that you can find a free purpose discovery meditation on my website. This meditation can be an excellent way to start your purpose exploration. These are strong words, but I can almost guarantee that this meditation will give you at least some piece of new information concerning your purpose. I say that based on that this is what people again and again report back to me after doing the meditation. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.